Well, we're uh, into our first uh, message on the seven churches in the book of, uh, of chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation. As I said last week, uh, the, the book of Revelation is made up of seven visions. Each of us gives us a particular perspective on the person and the work and the reign of Jesus as the Son of Man. And each of these visions also contains seven parts. So the book of Revelation is a book of seven sevens, seven lots of seven. And this structure has been given to us in that way to communicate this sense of this revelation has divine perfection, it's complete, it's perfect. It's a clear picture of Jesus Christ. So this first vision the seven churches shows us Jesus' divine perfection that is revealed through his church and the way that he deals with his church in, uh, in blessing and in discipline. What we'll see is uh, each of these letters has roughly the same structure. So it, they open with a reminder of one aspect, one or two aspects of the vision of Jesus that we saw in chapter 1 and which they particularly need to hear for their situation. This uh, aspect of Jesus speaks of his authority to carry out judgment upon the church, but also his ability to deliver on the promises that he makes. Then he tells them what he knows about them and their context, both good and bad. He tells them what he has against them. Now this phrase, this I have against you, only appears uh, three times in in the three letters because for two of the letters, two of the churches, he has no criticism, so he has nothing against them. And for two of the churches for whom there's only criticism, it's implied when he says, I know your situation. Then there's a call to respond to his words to that church in repentance or continuing faithfulness, a warning of judgment that will come if they don't repent, or a foretelling of something that they should expect to see happen among them in the near future as part of his working among them. And then they finish with a promise for the one who conquers, which will be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. So each church is slightly different but what they all have in common is this opening statement about who Jesus is from that first vision and then the conclusion of this promise to the one who conquers. And so it's important that we understand what is meant by that phrase to the one who conquers. These promises are made with a future view because they speak of the fullness of kingdom life which will only be fully, completely experienced in the new heavens and the new earth. But the tense of that word conquers is present, making it something that is true of people now. It's not that we will become conquerors if only we hang in to the end, but that we already are conquerors 
So we know in part something of the new heavens and the new earth and so that enables us to press on, to keep living today and to face hardship with hope. Here's what Paul says in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Being a conqueror is what it means to be a Christian. All Christians are conquerors. Not, it's not just a, a special class of super-Christians. We've been united to Jesus who has conquered our enemies of sin and death and the devil. There's no such thing as a defeated Christian. We may feel defeated at times, but it's never a full reality because we can never step out or fall out of the security of the victory that Jesus has won for us. This phrase, the one who conquers, is firstly is a description of Jesus himself. He is the first conqueror. He is the one who received from the Father all of the things that he promises to us as a reward for his victory. As we'll see in chapter 3, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. What the Father has given to Jesus in his victory, Jesus gives to us. So our victory isn't our own doing, it's the victory of Christ given to us as we are included in him, as we are in Christ. We'll see in chapter 12, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. There's the victory. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, that's us, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. We see here the principle of imputation, where something that belongs to Christ is freely credited to us, even though we've done nothing to earn it or achieve it. See how it says, they have conquered him, the accuser, as if we've done it. Yet how have we done it? Not by our actions, by the blood of the Lamb, Christ's actions at the cross. And the only thing that we actually do is speak of our testimony, what Christ has done. And as a result, we surrender our lives to him. Their actions that aren't really achieving anything except to highlight Christ's achievements. Both are an expression of the security that comes from knowing that salvation is guaranteed in Christ. We sing this song here occasionally. Oh, it's not up there. But you'll recognise it as I read it. 
we cannot but speak of that which we've heard. His power for salvation is his mighty word. We cannot but speak of that which we've seen, our souls in his spirit renewed and made clean. This victory isn't what the world calls victory. We proclaim a gospel of a crucified Saviour, bearing sin in humility and weakness. That's a message that's a stumbling block and foolishness to those who don't believe. And because this message is considered foolishness and offensive by the world, those who follow and serve this Jesus will face opposition and persecution. For us, the ultimate victory isn't in whether we live or die. It's whether in both life and death we have glorified Christ in our bodies, as Paul says in Philippians 2. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The world says that's a foolish thing. That's not victory to say to die is gain. But if it glorifies Christ, it is. So, to summarise, Jesus is the one who has conquered through his humble obedience to the Father's will, even to death on a cross. And at the cross, sin, death and the devil were defeated. As a reward, he has been raised up and has received his full inheritance from the Father, the kingdom, the nations, creation, everything. And because he's done this as the Son of Man, as the last Adam representing us, he now freely shares all of his fullness with us who belong to him through faith. It's all through the New Testament. Here's what Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Is this what motivates you to live for Christ now in this world? If not, what does? You may have heard of the image of the carrot and the stick. A farmer wants to get his stubborn donkey moving. He can use two methods. He can either hit the donkey from behind with a stick so that the donkey moves forward to avoid the pain. Or he can dangle a carrot in front of the donkey so that it moves forward trying to get a reward. The donkey and stick, uh, the donkey, uh, carrot and stick has been used to describe two different methods that we might use in parenting or business or government. And we might be tempted to apply either of those two analogies to these letters. We might say that Jesus is using one or the other to get the churches to toe the line, either the stick of the threat of judgment 
motivating us by our desire for self-preservation or an enticement of a reward, motivating us by our desire for self-gratification. But neither of those methods of motivation are biblical. Interestingly, human behaviour experts acknowledge that while both of those approaches can work to bring about conformity, to actually get someone to do something, neither of those approaches have lasting effects because as soon as the motivation or the punishment or or reward are reduced or removed, the behaviour starts to revert back to the way it was before. What they've found, and not surprisingly they've found this because human beings are made in the image of God and we still retain some of this image even though we have been corrupted by sin, what they've found is that the motivation that makes a lasting permanent change has to be internal, not external. So they use words like competence, So I do something if it makes me feel like I've improved myself by learning it's something new. Or autonomy, I feel like I've done it myself without someone else making or helping me. And relatedness, I feel that out of this I've formed some kind of meaningful relationships with others. Now these are simply simply secular terms for ideas that originate in the Bible. Ideas that are valued by us as human beings because of how we're created and they're especially valued by us in the modern Western world because of the long influence of Christianity. See, competence is really just the secular version of character. Biblically speaking of the person into which the Father is making me as he transforms me into the image of his son Jesus. Autonomy is just the secular version of liberty, which biblically speaks of me being set free from slavery to sin into the status of sonship in which I walk in the freedom of the Spirit. And relatedness, is the secular version of family, which biblically is this idea of sonship, being made a son or a daughter of the father and brothers together and sisters together in the church, meaningful relationships. So the secular view is that true lasting motivation comes not from punishment or rewards, but from seeing the intrinsic value of the action itself, from this sense of self-fulfilment it gives, the feeling it makes me more whole or more authentically who I should be. But this secular view will always be deficient because it doesn't factor God into the equation and it can only focus on this short life and nothing else. But as I said, it's not surprising that psychologists have come to this conclusion because of what the Bible says about how we are created. The true biblical picture is this. 
we see our actions in serving Christ as intrinsically good and valuable because we see him as intrinsically good and valuable and deserving of all the glory and honour that we can give him. That should be enough motivation in itself. Who Jesus is as the glorious reigning Son of God. But there's more. We're told that the Father has begun a good work in us to make us more like Jesus and he will be faithful to bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. We're guaranteed of this. Our works don't make it happen. They don't add to it. It's all the sovereign work of God who promises that those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified and he glorified because the Father always finishes what he begins. So that's why each of these letters is framed by the portrait of Jesus at the beginning and the promises to the one who conquers at the end. Everything in between, the commendations, the criticisms, the judgments, the calls to respond is to be seen in this light. The good that's seen in each church is because of the fruit and the works of the Holy Spirit, not their clever strategies or techniques. The critiques and the judgments are loving discipline designed not to destroy them but to keep refining and purifying his bride to prepare us for himself. The words of assurance and comfort, they're reminders of the reality that he is with us and remains with us. So that's the approach that we'll take with each of these seven churches. We'll look at how the letter opens with the portrait of Jesus and how it closes with the promise to overcomers and see how they are related and then how it shapes what he says to the church. So, with all of that said, we finally get to the church at Ephesus. The Ephesian church is probably the church with the most references in the New Testament. So it's a church that we probably know more about than the other churches. A whole chapter in Acts is devoted to how the Gospel came to Ephesus and through Ephesus to the whole region of Asia to all the other churches. Paul was there for over two years speaking daily in a local hall and the Gospel had a significant impact on that region of Asia. There are three events in Acts that are worth noting to understand this letter to the Ephesians. Firstly, the city was well known for its magical arts. Uh, It was famous for these scrolls known as the Ephesian words, scrolls which contained gibberish but claimed to have magical powers. And the Gospel's huge impact on the people of Ephesus led to one occasion when people who had come to faith in Jesus brought their scrolls, their magical scrolls, which together were worth millions of dollars in our terms and they burnt them publicly in this bold show that they were renouncing the works of darkness 
and we're willing to take a stand for Christ no matter what the consequences. Now, the magical practices were associated with the worship of the goddess Artemis. Ephesus hosted a temple to Artemis, one of the great, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was destroyed and rebuilt numerous times. Artemis was the goddess of the forests and the hills. And often she was depicted with a bow and arrow and with her hunting dogs. She would use her hunting dogs to both help and to harm hunters. And her temple contained images of the tree of life. However, the Greeks understood the tree of life. She was also the goddess of midwifery and childbirth. And she was fickle in this role too. So she could be called on to help pregnant women, but she was also responsible for miscarriages and death in childbirth. See how there are echoes here, albeit distorted, of Eden. Artemis and the temple is like a counterfeit of Eden. This worship of Artemis was a lucrative business. And so as the gospel was growing in Ephesus, Demetrius the silversmith, who, was, who made and sold shrines for Artemis, saw his business under threat and so he stirred up a riot to try and get the Christians expelled from the city. The third event in Ephesians is a few months after Paul had left Ephesus, he was returning to Jerusalem knowing he would be arrested and so he arranged to meet with the Ephesian church elders to farewell them, expecting to never see them again. In this meeting, he told them to be on guard against fierce wolves that will come among you, not sparing the flock and from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Why did he use the word wolves? Well, maybe it's an allusion to the hunting dogs of Artemis whose followers had violently opposed the church. So, with that background, let's see how Jesus presents himself to the church at Ephesus. Him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, we saw that the stars and the lampstands speak of the churches. The seven lampstands are the seven-stemmed menorah in the temple, the flames of which represent the presence of God. The Ephesians need to know that although they live in this city under the shadow of this great, wondrous temple of Artemis, they are actually the true temple of the true God. But there's more symbolism associated with the menorah. The design of the temple out of the tabernacle was a representation of the Garden of Eden. 
the very first temple where the man and woman were installed as priests. Because of sin they were expelled and the only way back into that paradise was to pass through the judgement of the fiery sword of the cherubim. So the decorations in the temple included cherubim and palms and flowers and pomegranates. And so in this setting, the menorah with its stem and the seven branches and the holders, the things that held the lamps were flowers as it stood there in front of the curtain of the holy place, it spoke of the tree of life in Eden. So as the priests entered the temple, they were symbolically going back into Eden. Before they could approach the holy place where the tree of life is, they must first pass through the fire, the altar of burnt offering. That would purify them and then enable them to come into the life-giving presence of God on behalf of the people. So, the seven lampstands are the church and the tree of life. The church and the tree of life are connected by this combined symbolism. The Bible speaks numerous times of trees and plants as images to represent God's people. Psalm 1 describes the person who meditates on God's word as a tree planted by streams of living water. We recently saw the picture of Israel as a stump out of which grows a shoot which becomes the branch of David, the Messiah. Jesus used a fig tree to depict Israel who by rejecting him as their Messiah would wither and die and he said the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to someone else. And then Jesus said to his disciples, I am the vine and you are the branches. We must remain in him if we are to bear fruit. And then in Romans, Paul describes Israel as a farmed olive tree into which are grafted wild olive branches, the Gentiles who have come in through the Gospel. So to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, it's more than just taking fruit and eating. It is to actually be included in the tree, grafted in to become part of the people that God has formed for himself. To use a modern image, it's to be fed intravenously so that the very life of the tree, which is the life-giving presence of God himself, actually flows continually in our veins. Jesus, the Lord and head of the church, who gives us our life as a head gives life to the body, He guarantees to us that in the new heavens and earth in which all of creation will be the paradise of God, we will be forever feeding on him, firmly planted like trees next to streams of living water, forever sustained by his life. There's your internal motivation 
And that's enough. That's all we need to know to patiently endure, which is what Jesus commends them for. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. It seems that they've taken Paul's words to heart when he met with the elders and they've not tolerated those who have falsely claimed to be apostles. And we find out a little bit more about these false apostles in verse 6. They were known as Nicolaitans. Now little, if anything, is known about who these people were apart from their name. It could be that they were a follower of a man called Nicholas, but it's worth noting what the word Nicolation actually means. It means the victory people. Nikos is victory or conquering and Laos is people. So Nikos is the same word that's used for the one who conquers. So it could be that Nicolation was a name for for these people who were preaching a triumphalist prosperity gospel. The same kind of uh, people that Paul was contending with in Corinth. People who claimed that the glory of God is manifested in in spectacular experiences and miracles with the benefits of the new creation being known today in things like health and wealth and status in this world instead of, as we've seen, in the preaching of the gospel of Christ crucified and in humble, self-sacrificial living for Jesus, even if it means losing all of our health and our wealth and status. Remember the promise to the true victory people, the one who conquers? All of these things will be given, not in this life, but in the resurrection and the new creation where their glory will make all that this world has to offer pale into insignificance. So Ephesus is a church that's patiently enduring. They're standing firm on the truth of the gospel. They're not tolerating any false teaching. But there's an inconsistency and it's one that threatens their whole existence as a church. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Their firm knowledge of the truth of the gospel wasn't being expressed in their lives in the way that it was in the beginning when the church was born in that midst of that conflict and opposition. Remember their love for Christ was expressed in that public acknowledgement and abandonment of magic and the abandonment of idols and they're standing firm even when the city was thrown into a riot in opposition to the gospel. It was a church born out of tribulation. And soon, so many of the churches uh, would be as well. But it seems that while they had remained strong on the patient endurance part, of that threefold description of life in Jesus, tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance, that shied away from the tribulation part. 
There's no mention here of them facing persecution or hardship. Possibly, as a well-established church, the first in the region, they'd become inward-looking. They'd grown and they were able now to look after themselves well and to maintain the status quo without having to interact with those around them or to do anything that might cause a stir in their city. They became focused on guarding and preserving the gospel but it seems they were losing sight of the call to proclaim the gospel. But true light, true love for Christ must express itself in a desire to declare his excellencies to the world around us, to seek to glorify his name no matter what the cost, to always have the doors open, to invite in and welcome all who are being drawn to the Father through the gospel of Christ. A genuine love for Christ will translate into a genuine love for one another and for our neighbour. So here's the irony of how we can operate. We easily switch to self-preservation mode, making sure we have the systems and the programs in place that we hope will ensure that we continue to exist as a church and hopefully grow in number. We focus on getting things right and believing the right things and behaving in the right way, which in itself is good and commended by Jesus. But if it's all about maintaining and perpetuating the institution itself, treating the church like a club or a business, if, it, if people on seats equals success, then Jesus says that while we may still exist as a group of people who do things together, as far as he's concerned, the lampstand has been removed from its place and we're no longer a church in his eyes. As the son of man who walks among the lampstands, he has the authority to snuff out the flame and to remove the lampstand of any church who has lost its first love for Christ. Now, don't misunderstand this. He's not saying that you will lose your salvation if you're not proclaiming the gospel in the midst of persecution. This is a promise to the church, not to an individual. He's not saying unless you evangelise, you're in danger of losing salvation. The promise to the one who overcomes always stands. Nothing can ever remove that security that you have in Christ. But he is saying that he has authority to build his church and to discipline his church. And sometimes building his church means he no longer gives his stamp of approval to a local congregation. They might call themselves a church, but they've given up on that commission to go and make disciples of all nations. They no longer have that genuine love for Christ, that desire to see his name glorified in the whole earth. So the Ephesians were right in hating the works of these victory people and their prosperity gospel, but they were in danger of having their own version of a prosperity gospel, one that saw success 
in just keeping the institution running instead of living in selfless, sacrificial love for Christ and his people and the world. So do we have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to us through the church at Ephesus? We can be thankful if Jesus' commendations are also true for us, but not in a way that we pat ourselves on the back because we think we've achieved it in our own strength. We also need to be ready and willing to hear his call to repent when and where we've fallen short of this love for Christ that will enable us to love not our lives unto death. Let's pray.